Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast with Owen and Ken. Hi Owen, how are Hi, you? Hi Ken, I'm good. The city of Manchester has done many great things for the rest of England over the years. Yeah. From driving the country's textile industry in the 1800s yeah. to establishing the venerable Guardian newspaper in 1821. Right. Right through to giving the country the Manchester music scene. I know you're a big fan of it in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. And this weekend, to add to that list, the city's two major football teams saved the country from Europe, European-wide embarrassment by scratching out a couple of wins last night after Arsenal and Chelsea. The Southern... The Southern Softies had let England down. That's true. On Tuesday night. That is true, Owen. And they um, they were uh, fighting for the coefficient, um, England's coefficient, mm-hmm. which um, of course has to be kept above Italy's coefficient in order to in order to ensure that uh, England still has four teams in the Champions League. Um, You're welcome, London. When you see Chelsea and Arsenal, and particularly Arsenal, in the Champions League year after year, and the sheer futility of their presence in the competition you kind of you do wonder whether this coefficient thing is really all that exciting a subject would it really be that bad a thing if only three English teams got into the Champions League to be honest um, I'm not sure I don't think it would make much difference and it certainly wouldn't make much difference to the bottom line financially of these clubs which is all they seem to care about it wouldn't make a difference to Arsenal if they stopped qualifying for the Champions League not a huge difference no not financially I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, they mightn't be able to hold on to a superstar like Mesut Ozil. Oh, no, sorry. They probably would be able to hold on to Mesut Ozil. It might be somebody like Alexis Sanchez who might start getting itchy feet or... Uh, is that what you say when someone wants to leave? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah itchy feet. Uh, you know, as a result of being deprived of the, ability, the opportunity to play in uh, Europe's top competition. I think a lot of the other Arsenal players might be okay with it. I think they might be, yeah, you know, this is a good club. We play every week in a, in a big stadium. Okay, the fans seem to be quite annoyed about something a lot of the time. you know. But we're making good money. We live in a great global city. There's always something to do in London. <laughs> you know, this is, I think this is what the Arsenal players would be thinking. It's just amazing to me that they, I mean, with certain exceptions, you know, Sanchez is not necessarily the only Arsenal player who, who shows a, real, a really fiery desire to win. But the others do don't make it quite as obvious, yeah. Really, and uh, 
to get to get beaten in the way that they did on Tuesday night was just so embarrassing. Report on sport time. But we're not going to talk about that right away, Alan, because we've got uh, issues closer to home mm-hmm. to deal with. Um, you might remember a few weeks ago, um, the FAI AGM was on in Sligo. Yeah. Um, and I remember at that, Declan Conroy got up before the delegates and told us all that he was going to, he was in the middle of preparing a report on the League of Ireland in order to see what we might be able to do with it. Yeah. Declan Conroy being a, uh, um, uh, essentially a consultant, a kind of a um, business best practice jack of all trades, uh, whose expertise would include, you know, I suppose management consulting, how to do things better, uh, PR, PR mm-hmm. consulting, and has worked uh, with the FAI uh, in the past. Um, I mean, he used to actually... Uh, he used to work directly for the FBI Director of Strategic and Stadium Affairs. Um, so he's, he's someone who knows the organization. He's, a, he's got a history with the organization. Um, when the FBI decided they wanted someone to look into the League of Ireland, do a, do a report on it, see what um, where things were good and maybe where things were not so good, yeah. uh, they, they went to a guy who had some... They did, let's say they didn't go to someone, a complete outsider, who might have come with, it with a, come with it with a completely blank slate. But they obviously trusted Declan Conroy to do a good job. So anyway, he's, he has uh, produced his report. It was out there a couple of days ago. And uh, the report is all online. I mean, if you fancy reading it, you can go through the 75 pages or so of this report. Um, to cut it uh, in, into a rather shorter version, essentially Conroy... The, I was struck by this report when I was reading the... the um, the sort of apologetic tone of the first few pages in which he kind of is at pains to um, show how much respect he has for the passion of the supporters of League of Ireland clubs and the uh, enormous importance of the traditions of certain of these clubs uh, and to kind of underline that that respect is central to the viewpoint of this report. However, <laughs> you know, the, there's a sort of a, we, we as we move forward, the head rather than the heart needs to be in the driving seat. If you, if you can uh, catch my drift there, yeah. So, um, I mean, if you if you look at his, uh, I mean, if you, if you look at the kind of broad, first of all, if you read Emmett Malone's report on on this uh, in the Irish Times, he makes the point that money isn't really mentioned here. You know, there's there's a sort of opacity surrounding all the figures. You know, how much money does the league generate? You know, this information is not given out. Like, Conroy, for instance, recommends that the League of Ireland prize money, which in total at the moment I think is about €315,000, should be increased. To what To, to what extent? Well, I don't, I'm not really sure. It's not, uh, it wasn't his job to, you know, make specific recommendations like that. Um, what What did he recommend? Well, I mean, there's a few things. There's, there's a lot going on in there. Okay. One, one of the, uh, he, he conducted 190 interviews with various people in Irish football. Uh, and there was also a kind of a survey of about 1,700 fans, you know, who, who gave their views. Um, uh, things that they, things that the fans said, you know, why do you not go to games? Um, uh, 31% say lack of facilities. Poor quality grounds. So, well, these aren't League of Ireland fans, then. If they don't, these are League of Ireland. These are these are fans who, Laps who fans are saying that why they, yeah why you know uh, lack of attractiveness of attending a game. This appeared to be centered around the attractiveness of the product as a whole, as distinct from the attractiveness of the football on offer. Twenty three percent say the quality of the play is poor. 
So that is the football. Uh, 22% say the cost. <laughs> Come on, guys. Seriously, like, the cost. Well, I suppose. It depends. It depends. The traveling maybe is something something which, which could add up. But, you know, I don't think League of Ireland football is necessarily... Well, particularly if you're going to your home. If you're just talking about home games, mm. with a, trying to get big away attendances is maybe a different matter. Still, though, people, you know, want to find reasons why they don't go to don't go to the game. Eleven uh, percent a negative experience at a previous game. Um, it's a bit loose. Uh, I'm sorry, not loose, but that's a bit open to interpretation. Uh, negative. Sure, that ties in with bad football or bad facilities. You know, do you know what I mean? It seems yeah. like it's almost already covered. A negative experience. I mean, who knows? Maybe the, the uh, this very specific thing could have happened to you at the League of Ireland. Forty-eight percent other. So that's quite a large other, really. <laughs> that's, that's a big other. I mean, are the categories we haven't thought of? Apparently, a lot of people for maybe that's just the people who can't bring themselves to admit. Like, I just don't want to. Yeah, you know, um, all fans who have never supported a League of Ireland club. The following four reasons were cited: one, no local team; two, living outside of Ireland; <laughs> three, the quality of the football is poor. All those Irish football connoisseurs out there, the quality of the football is poor. Um, People go and watch a lot of lower division football in England. You yeah, know? And I think that that big other section there, a lot of it will be covered. I don't know the best way to articulate it is that, that it's just not in a person's routine. It's just not mm. in my. I have everyone has their weekly routine. I never they do got a certain into the habit of it. Yeah, exactly. I just didn't get into the habit of it, and a lot of the people who did get into the habit of it got into the habit of it through their parents or through their friends or through somebody like that. And when they are continuing to go, um, a lot of the time, a football supporter loyalty is almost a masochistic thing. But you kind of do it because, like, you feel like you'd be dishonouring your father if you didn't. You know what I mean? There's some subconscious thing going on there where you feel compelled to. To go. I mean, I'm not talking specifically about the League of Ireland there. I think it's the case with all, yeah. with, with a lot of football support. Um, facilities not good enough is another complaint of people who have never supported the League of Ireland club, maybe, maybe never even been to the League of Ireland ground. Facilities aren't good enough. Um, so there, there's another section in terms of where, where they start talking about the media exposure. Remember, we were talking about this with, with the Shamrock Rovers situation recently, where they were like, well, we, we don't want to be on TV in Friday nights because we don't get paid and our crowds are down. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole issue of um, the coverage of the sport uh, in the media, apparently conflicting views from respondents to the survey on the benefits and merits of the scale and type of TV coverage. Um, many commented on the... Uh, uh, well, for instance, Soccer Republic is, comes in for a particular mention because in respect of the latter, that's Soccer Republic, the content not being exclusively SSC Electricity League, the late-night time slot particularly, the lack of first division game coverage, the balance of talk, in inverted commas, versus action, and the duration of the action pieces were all criticisms put forward during the consultations. Um, many commented on the negative nature of the discussions and analysis by some of the panelists and the sometimes less than attractive views of some of the stadium footage with at times modest crowds contributing to the brand being portrayed as less than optimal. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm not quite sure what Soccer Republic is meant to do about that. If they've got, you know, I mean, if, if, if RT have cameras at a game, there's only a couple of hundred people there. Most of the stadium is empty and the stadium looks a bit ramshackle. Are they supposed to computer generate? Are they supposed to computer generate like a bird's nest type? Well, uh, no, I mean, that, that, would be, that would be ludicrous, but they could... Get that old, remember the old Arsenal thing from the 1990s when Highbury was being done up and they had the wall of faces. Painted, painted, painted. faces. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
that was the, that was Arsenal to put it up there. that something like that is actually mentioned in terms of uh, uh, issues. For instance, because they obviously consulted with some broadcasters as well. Issues which will help broadcasters in the image of a game shown on TV also need to be addressed. The look of the stadium, camera positions, signage visuals to alleviate the sometimes sparse nature of the area covered in the camera angle view. So I think that's what you're talking about there. And the inclusion of special features, e.g. a former player coming back to the club for that game, or other vignettes which will enhance the TV coverage and image of the game and of the league. Uh, also, floodlights is another thing that comes up. Mm. Um, talk about some of the, the viewing figures. There is an appetite out there. It says, uh, uh, final game 2014 season between Dundalk Cork attracted peak audience of 200,000. Yeah, there's a lot of buzz around that game. Mm. Uh, if I remember that correctly, it was not a league decider. Uh, so that's... That almost seems like a bit of a unique set of circumstances. Well, but it does show that a couple of thousand people want to watch that particular match. So it's something you would have thought it might be something to build on. What are we going to say? Interesting, you should say that, Alan. Go on. A, an occasion, a bit of an occasion, a bit of a buzz around the game. Did mm-hmm. I hear you say a buzz around the game? Oh, interesting. <laughs> that gives me an idea. That's right. Why not try to make more of these games more of an occasion with a little bit of buzz around them? Face painting for the kids. I don't, I don't remember seeing that in the report, but it's something that if I was running one of these clubs, I might consider, um, because children love that. And if you want to get them to come to a game, then why not give them free face painting, and maybe that will help. But no, um, this idea of occasion, buzz, uh, Irish people we know are event junkies. Um, they don't really have, they don't really have an appetite for the weekly grind, but they will pack the stadium, <laughs> or at least. Some of them will come to the stadium for the league decider. So what about if every game could in its way be a league decider? Well, that would be dramatic. Well, this is kind of the thinking. So what so uh, actually I'll get I'll get to that because there's just a couple of other things here I want to I want to talk about in the media section, but let's let's hold that thought right in terms of occasions, because that that comes in at the conclusion of this. He says um another thing here is that this this is again from the road. A common view also exists that the broadcasting of the SSE Electricity League in overseas markets represents an untapped opportunity. Mm-hmm. The view is that opportunities exist to promote the SSE Electricity League in non-Irish UK markets and broaden the scale of the league's reputation to new markets, ben- benefiting sponsorship generation potential and additional TV rights revenues. I mean, this is something Niall Quinn mentioned. The idea of sort of he he said this. Look, there's these. TV stations all over the world gagging for content. Give them the, you know, we can sell the Ireland out there. I'm not sure. I'm not really sure about this. I mean, this this strikes me as a bit of an El Dorado type of idea. You know, we've got like, uh, there's gold and then there are hills. Like, abroad is going to suddenly pay the League of Ireland for TV rights when the League of Ireland clubs at the moment don't even get TV money for appearing on Irish TV. Yeah. You know what I mean? Obviously, Orti is paying the uh, I see Orti is paying the FAI for the rights to these matches, but the clubs aren't getting direct payments from being on on TV, from having their matches moved to being on TV. I'm not sure about this. I mean, I think it's a it's a lovely idea. It would be great. It would be great if the rest of the world was prepared to pay to watch Irish football that Irish people apparently are prepared prepared to pay to watch. But I I feel that no. it's unlikely to be a huge source of income. Even. I mean, even that said, they should be looking outside of Ireland and the UK. Even to look in the UK would, I I think, be somewhat optimistic. I don't know. There was a YouTube um, video a few months ago. I don't know if you saw Copper 90 is the name of the YouTube channel. Mm. And they do a lot of 
uh, lower level football in the UK and make these videos very well produced and all that kind of thing. Derby, Derby Days was the name of the series they were doing. I had a presenter come over to the Bowes Rovers Derby. And it was really good. It was actually packaged really well. It was about eight, eight or nine minutes long. And I think it was aimed at the UK market largely and trying to explain how amazing this this rivalry is. And it did look really good. And I was thinking, well, if it was in the UK, I'd be quite impressed by that. But mm. I don't see how much... So there is... If, if packaged in the right way, particularly those big derby games, can can look good to... But you've, everyone has so much on their plate. There's enough sport in every other country. Yeah. I don't see how you're going to penetrate international markets, if that's what they're talking about. Yeah, it's 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 hard to see how you can do it on, on a mass scale or on a scale that's going to make enough of a difference. I mean, maybe you could get a couple of TV contracts. Maybe you could. But I don't think they're going to be for big money. You know what I mean? Mm. People might say, oh, yeah, we'll take that. You know, but we're not going to... League of Ireland rights are not going to sell for huge quantities of money in, in uh, Mexico or whatever. You know, it's, I just don't really see it. But, okay, here, here's another thing. So they, so they talk... A lot of it comes down then to marketing because it, it's uh, a marketing champion for the league is one of the, it basically means a marketing manager, I guess, but champion probably sounds a bit better, you know, like a uh, marketing director and to, to, to be appointed and to, and to sort of try and drive a lot of this. Although Conroy is saying, look, some of the clubs are better at doing this than others. A lot of the clubs don't really have the resources and are, he's not, it's not like he's saying these clubs are clueless, but that's obviously the, you know, a lot of clubs just don't really know they don't have the expertise to sort of market themselves in this kind of way. Um, but here's here's an interesting bit of it. It says, overall on paper, there's a sizable amount of marketing promotion taking place between sponsors, FAA broadcast partners, and the club's activities, which produce strong brand awareness for the league centrally and considerable noise locally. Yet the league suffers from a certain negativity that dominates. While some of this is undoubtedly cultural, a concerted effort by all parties within the game must be made to engage more positively around the brand. As a start, the game needs everyone from within to avoid being negative in public. Most contributors conceded while everyone should be free to speak their mind and be critical in public, the reality is the higher the levels of negativity, the more damage occurs to the game, the clubs and the league. There appears to be sufficient channels available to air grievances and or negative comments about any aspect of the SCA Electricity League to avoid this taking place within the game. If there's a need for further avenues to be open to facilitate this, then the clubs and the FAI should agree to this. Negative sentiment has a very significant potential impact on the finances of each club and the league and to the greatest possible degree has to be countered from within the game. Then it goes on to talk about critics and commentators outside the game. Obviously, we can't control them. I mean, <laughs> reading it. Many clubs have suggested the league needs to more actively combat the vocal critics who have no current role in the game and no positive agenda through a much more vocal and active positive representation of and by the clubs in the league. I wonder who they're talking about there. <laughs> uh, it's, it's hard to say, really. Yeah. Um, but, like, I mean, this is negative like we we have to stop being negative nancy's like that's come on no you want to watch if you're if you are going to sit down if you're not a league of ireland fan and you're watching the analysis one thing that would immediately put me off watching any sport is if everyone's too sycophantic about it and everyone's like oh this is this is great if the game's bad you need pundits to say it's bad uh, particularly in ireland i think we've kind of grown up with this uh, mm. over the years this idea that actually we we can take somebody being negative about something and it's not going to make us turn off. I do understand the the, the overall point, but it sounds like there's a yeah, how much how much whitewashing do you want to do? If the yeah. game is terrible, you have to say the game is terrible. If this if the facilities are bad, you can't pretend that they're amazing. Yeah. That's that wouldn't work for me. And it it is a model that a lot of sports go by. Yeah. I mean, the UFC being a prime example. 
UFC is an interesting. No matter no matter what happens, every, everything's great. All these fighters are great. There's great depth. There's great everything. What a he night this was! He is one of the greatest fighters in the world. You know, and there's never any. Um, it's a slightly off-putting element of it that there's never any negative commentary around it. Or if there is, that that person apologizes for their irresponsible and selfish behavior two <laughs> days later. But like. You know, on the other hand, what they do is interesting. Like they've got obviously a really sophisticated marketing operation, and what they and basically the structure of it is they charge for their main events, but then they generate this vast volume of free uh, publicity stuff that they just pump out onto YouTube. You know what I mean? And that's where everyone is kind of watching it. You know, that's where that's where they're getting their sort of message through. They just generate vast quantities of promotional stuff. Now, obviously, they've got a lot of highly skilled people working in that area you know maybe if you were a kind of a guy who made you know little sort of promotional videos with like a kind of a banging soundtrack that looked really cool right you might be more interested in working for the ufc than for the league of ireland mm. you probably get a higher salary you get a lot more to work with you know what i mean but that's not to say the league of ireland can't try and do something along those lines there's this gigantic promotional opportunity available to them in the form of essentially youtube mm. I mean, a lot of what I was reading in this was talking about, you know, TV, radio, local press, and so on. And it didn't really seem to take take into account that no, that's really where you want to be looking. Yeah, which brings me back to that YouTube clip I saw earlier on, that video. That's a perfect example. It was done from somebody from outside, but that's the kind of, it was a positive image to show of the league, mm. uh, purely online, yeah. Exactly. So, so that, but, you, you know, again, to produce that takes a certain amount of skill you got to get you, you got to have people who are able to do that you, those people have to be paid you know people can there's no reason why they would work for the league of ireland just out of the goodness of their hearts you know so that's the, that's kind of the that's the problem you know yeah. if there's not enough money ultimately if you can't get a critical mass then it's difficult to make these sorts of things happen even if you can say oh that might be a good idea now there's just very finally on this because there are champions league things we want to talk about as well is the um the recommendations at the end um and he says, essentially, Connor says, the options open to the FAI and the clubs within the SSA electricity include, one, maintain the status quo, rolling over existing structures. So basically, he says, we could keep going as we are, but obviously nobody thinks that's a good idea. Number two, disband the merger. That is the merger with the FAI, with the league returning, uh, with the running of the league returning to the clubs. Consensus is against this idea. Clubs recognize the difficulties and complexities in administering the league appear to have limited appetite for taking on the running of the league themselves. Yep. Right, so... It's still going to remain the FAI's difficult child, let's say. They're going to sort out this difficult child. Three, start again with a radical, centrally controlled, regional franchise model. There's a desire from some to examine this radical model. Um, essentially, just scrap it. And let's completely begin again with football here. And you, what you're talking about then is something like the A-League in Australia or, or uh, Major League Soccer. You know, saying, okay, this obviously isn't working. Let's get rid of it. Let's sweep this away and let's start over again. We're going to have X amount of clubs in Dublin, in Cork. And, but if they talk about competing with each other, so would it be, say, South Dublin versus the Midlands or oh, something no, like that? Oh, sure, no, I'm sure that you would have a... Well, I don't know, actually. Or, or, or leagues within each yeah. within each area. I think that you would have... You presumably have a national top division. I guess. I don't know. I mean, this is something that would have to be be thought through but you would have a central uh, uh, you know the the thing about these kind of more modern leagues major league soccer being a good example is that it's run by a central entity mm. the clubs are franchises yeah. um the difficulties pointed out with this include the availability of major investment funds to finance the central franchiser the ability of franchisees to raise funds and expertise to carry out their operations methodology for choosing franchisees 
the basis for the business case, return on investment criteria, etc. Issues three, facilities, culture, fan loyalty, etc. need to be addressed. So the idea that, you know, it's one thing to say, let's rip this stuff up and start again. But you're going to probably have quite a lot of angry fans you of lose Shamrock fans Rovers, have, Bose, yeah, yeah. you know, St. Pat's who are saying, you mean you've just ripped up my club and cast it aside? That's not yeah, necessarily going to go down you, well. You would lose a lot of them. You would. Um, uh, so what seems to be the conclusion is that the best way to do it is number four, a new league structure with a new match format, new brand, new marketing approach, new standards of football club administration. Um, so essentially talking about um, ten, a 10 team top division, have to relegate a couple of extra clubs down from 12 to 10, 10 in the bottom it division. It's like a lot of this has been talked about before. They've all, like, Mm. There have been other reports talking about the need for a marketing guru to come in and take over. Um, this 10-team, I'm almost certain this 10-team division has happened in the past. Could be wrong on that, but definitely it's been suggested in the past. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, you remember you were talking about occasions, though? Oh, yeah, yeah, let's go back to occasions. Well, what if mm -hmm. instead of having a 10-team division... You just have two teams. No. <laughs> and every week they play each other in the Irish Cup final. Well, you'd really know, you'd get to know the players really well. <laughs> no, you've got 10 teams. But then after 27 matches of the season, you split the team, you split the league into six, the top six and the bottom four. And then the top six play each other only, and the bottom four play each other only. Mm. That means that the games top six teams are playing are higher quality and have more of a chance of being significant than the current situation where they're playing maybe like dead rubbers against bad teams. So each week there's more of an occasion, more of a buzz. The league becomes more unpredictable. You could maybe rock it up from sixth to first in no time at all. Uh, Emmett Malone had a, had a line in his piece about this saying, you know that saying, league tables don't lie? Well, ours will. Uh, <laughs> at, least, at least ours might, you know, if this system's running. On the other hand, if you've got a thing where... It, all the games become a bit more crucial. Maybe that's maybe that taps into the event junkie. Uh, you know, and we're just throwing around ideas here. Yeah, not sure about it. But I feel like I've been rubbishing, or at least constructively criticizing a lot of the ideas that you've come up with here, Ken. Mm. If you were, the, if that you the were, Conroy report has come up with. I think if you were coming in from outside, you would say, start again. But we're not, though, are we? We're, we're, coming, from, we're coming from inside. We're all here. And, you know, we can't disrespect existing stakeholders um, and therefore, the problem looks like it's you know it's difficult. I mean, people had pointed. I saw John Fallon writing about it, saying, "Look, you know, the Genesis Report, two thousand and five. There were certain targets given then. You know, we want buy around now, mm. four thousand fans per game. You know, most of the games taking place in stadiums capable of holding ten to fifteen thousand fans. None of this has happened. You know what I mean? I, I remember on twelve years ago." going to see um, Bohemians against Bate Borisov in the Champions League in Daily Mount. Bohemians won 3-0. Um, Bate Borisov beat Roma in the Champions League group stages this week. You know? So, I mean, I guess in, in the case of Borisov, they're, they're, they're rid of a special case. They've got this tractor company that like subsidizes them. So it's maybe not a fair comparison. Still, though, you know, they, are, they do play in the Belarusian League. 12 years ago, Bohemians were beating them. Uh, okay, Bata played, played Dundalk this time. This is one of the things Eamon Dunphy raised. Eamon Dunphy wasn't happy about the Conroy report. It seemed mainly because they didn't interview him. He was like, why, why did they not interview me? I've, given, you know, I've been involved in Irish football for 65 years. And I'm not a person that they... He was, he was really pissed off about it. But uh, he, he attacked Dundalk actually over that Bata-Barsov game, saying the pitch was a disgrace. It was, it was a disgrace. 
eat. It's not a credible organization that will play. But I should have complained. Dundalk should have been in the Champions League. You know what I mean? Right. So look, Bel- Belarus has got it together, but we're still uh, we're still trying to figure out what That's we need to do. The Conroy Report. People want to hear about, it. and then we will be talking Champions League with Gabriele Mercati and with John Bruin shortly. But what do you want to get? What do you want to get into here in your report in sport? Well, just the, the Chelsea again uh, lost. Uh, now you see uh, articles begin to appear in the British press from the guys on the Chelsea beat saying players not happy. Players are not happy. Uh, Dominic Fifield in the Guardian concerns growing within the Chelsea dressing room at the perceived scapegoating of certain players by Jose Mourinho the decision not to take Oscar and Loic Remy to Porto midweek and the continued absence of John Terry from the starting lineup are understood to have surprised senior squad members is it scapegoating if it's of four players is it not just dropping players because they're playing terribly well it's like it's you can't drop them all, but you could are, drop them are all. Are they are they playing terribly? That was was Terry playing as badly, or or has, is he carrying the can here? I mean, the thing about Terry is that dropping Terry always had a touch of the rude hullet dropping Alan Shearer's about it. Maybe Terry's not quite as powerful now as Shearer was then at Newcastle. Uh, he, in fact, clearly he's not because Mourinho's still at the club. But you know, did he deserve to be blamed uh, for the Manchester City defeat? It's not like he played that well, but did anyone else? I'm not really. I'm not convinced about that. It's. It seems like there's too much of the whip going on here from Mourinho. There's no nobody that I've heard has explained properly though, why would he want to scapegoat John Terry and make this almost political stance, if you wish, um, as opposed to dropping Ivanovic, for example, who's been poor. Well, remember he um, he substituted John Terry at halftime in that game. Yeah. Now that's a decision that he has to stand by, or he looks weak. Um, I mean, in the same way with Ava Carnero. Ava Carnero, incidentally, he's not going to be charged with using sexist language towards Ava Carnero. Um, the, the FA said, no, we don't, we don't see this as discriminatory. He's basically just abusing an employee, but not in any special way because she's a female employee. It's not, it's not sexist. Um, but in the same way with Ava Carnero, he had a big go at her. She gave a little bit back in the form of saying, thank you for your support. Then he finished her off. You know, it took or it took all her duties off. I said, "No, it's fine. You can still work here. You're just going to take all your duties." Um, it's kind of like having to stand by a decision for the sake of showing that you're a strong leader. Yeah. Whether or not the decision in itself was a good decision in the first place, it's not. You can't really admit that you were wrong. That's think, pretty convincing. And <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take that. I think I think he's gotten into a dangerous situation there with Terry. But you know. I don't know how dangerous he thinks it is. Maybe he fancies getting out of there at this stage because it looks as though the team is really is coming part of the seams. I don't know how he's going to jolt this back into life because obviously whipping the players isn't going to work. You know, he's not getting performances out of anyone. He hasn't been able to sort of, you know, he, he's tried uh, criticizing them. He's attacked them and put, oh, they all got minus one out of ten. I wanted to make six substitutes. You know, they've all let me down. And so it's not working. So he's going to have to think of something else or he won't be there for very much longer. Ronaldo? Uh, Ronaldo, Ronaldo has uh, equal the uh, scoring record of Real Madrid, 323 goals for Real Madrid over Raul. It took him 433 fewer games to score 323 goals, 308 yeah. as about 741. It's astonishing. It's an unbelievable monument in the footballing landscape. I'm not going to sit here and waste everyone's time by telling them that Ronaldo is a good <laughs> goal scorer. He did, uh, after the game, say, my future's at Real Madrid, but who knows what will happen next season. So his short-term future's at Real Madrid. Um, he said one, he said, I have a good relationship with everyone, the president, coaches and workers, 
coaches. <laughs> coaches, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's Utah, Rafa. Uh, we've got a lot of coaches here. Rafa Benitez is one. Um, but it seems as though he's, uh, you know, maybe thinking about, maybe Madrid isn't going to necessarily be the last club he plays for. That's it for Kennedy's Report on Sport. FIFA made a movie recently. Did they? John Delaney could run anything. They did, they did. About themselves. Yeah, about themselves. that's ego, isn't it? He could run FIFA. Certainly better than Sat Blatter. Yeah, that is, that's incredible ego, but the real movie's on its way. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. No, no, don't forget that. In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself. And I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you. We one or two expletives. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, what well, I do. And that was it. We one or two expletives. And I just asked him to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here to tell you, just stared at her for seven or eight seconds. And I said, move on now, please. And on he moved. When I went in and told him how I felt about him, yeah. and there was some expletive views. We came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement for FAI. Right? And you've used the figure there. Why don't you? Gabriel Mercotti is ready to go on the, well, scratchy wins last night for the two Manchester clubs. Two defeats for Chelsea and Arsenal on Tuesday. Gabriele, I mean, Louis van Gaal after the match last night says that, that the Premier League is a rat race. It's not the same in other countries. So essentially, the other leagues are not as competitive and the rest of the teams in the top in those top divisions in the top countries get to rest their players when they need to we've kind of heard this argument before but given how badly the English clubs are going at the moment in Europe is there a ring of truth to what Van Gaal says? No it's, it's, it's a completely lame argument because and the reason it's a completely lame argument is um, you know it, it was an absolute rat race between 2007 and, and, and 2010 in England and English clubs did well um, it was an absolute rat race uh, on an even bigger scale and said, yeah, in the 1990s, and uh, they did very, very well. And if anything, you know, when, it, when a team does badly, um, so like, and I'll use Italy as an example, um, but when the Italian league was, was doing really, really badly the last three or four years, um, so many people were saying that, well, the problem is the league isn't competitive, Juventus are so much better than everybody else, uh, and that's why, you know, when it comes to Europe, they can't handle it, and, and so on. So it seems to me like one of those arguments that people can throw around both both ways, right? Uh, having a competitive league uh, is, uh, you know, it, it makes you tougher and better, um, and that's an explanation uh, for success. And then if you do badly, then having a competitive league means that supposedly it's so physically draining or whatever else. Yeah, but, I mean, well, I suppose people have advanced the argument that Bayern Munich have struggled to finish off their Champions League campaigns in the last couple of years because there's no competitive games left for them in, in the league. So, yeah, I do take your point on that one. Well, what is the reason, then, that English clubs are struggling? I mean, they've got... it's not a, they, they still seem to be falling victim to the old issues that English teams had in Europe of maybe being a little bit of not uh, not in Van Hal's case but in some of the other teams case of um, not necessarily valuing possession in the way that they should of playing a type of game it seems a little bit naive almost in Europe which seems bizarre considering the a lot of the players and managers are from various countries now uh, yeah like you said I think the old sort of English naivete in Europe argument I don't think you can use that anymore for the reason that you outlined that you know they're foreign ma- managers and, and, and foreign players um, I, I think it's 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 a it's a mixture of reasons. I don't know that, that there's a huge pattern. I mean, should we really be that surprised that you know Chelsea go and lose to Porto when 
you know, they, they've lost and played badly all season long um, domestically, the exception of the Arsenal game. Maybe that's not such a surprise. You know, maybe um, the, you know, Arsenal, I thought, against both Olympiacos and Zagreb, while they weren't great, they certainly did enough to win. Um, United are obviously a team in transition, but again, I thought they deserved to win both their games, including the Eindhoven game, which which they lost. Um, and City, you know, perhaps a bit more of a, of a mixed bag there. Um, but I, I think it's, it's difficult to come up with the one overarching theory, although there is one thing I would say is... Too often, you know, while it's true that net spend and, uh, and, and wage bills are correlated to success, you know, we tend to think that there's a linear relationship. We tend to think that, you know, oh, oh, look, you know, City spend, you know, 100 million. This other team spends 10 million. It doesn't mean City are 10 times better. It simply means City are marginally better. And you see this all the time in the World Cup, right? I mean, Costa Rica with with a bunch of guys that nobody's ever heard of, uh, with the exception of maybe Brian Ruiz and Kaylor Navas, they come within a penalty kick of, of reaching the World Cup semifinal, right? And you look at where these guys play and who these guys are, and you're like, well, you know, how is this possible? Well, I think the reality is that the economics of the game are a little bit skewed, and that if you play for a big team in, in a bigger league, you will earn much more money and you will cost more money, um, but doesn't necessarily mean that you're substantially better, you know, with the exception of obviously, you know, the, the, the Messi, Ronaldo category of players. Is there a problem in English football with a lack of football expertise? I mean, I look at these English clubs, um, a lot of them have been taken over in recent years and wonder if really the people who are running them, the people who are spending the money, not just the coaches, but, you know, the, um, the transfer committees, the sporting directors, the what have yous, I wonder if those people are really at the same level as their counterparts um, in in Germany, Spain, and Italy. I think um, that's very true for certain clubs. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think United are you know really really suffer by the fact that they don't have um, that they don't have anybody with expertise on on transfers, right? So what happens is Woodward has to go and. And you know, hire agents and intermediaries um, to do the I mean, business. It is like a pattern that you see across all the clubs. I mean, Man City are actually the only. If I think of say the you know, if you include Liverpool as one of the top five clubs uh, in England, Man City are the ones that have hired Cheeky Begierstein. You know, a guy with um, uh, a serious record of achievement. You know, it doesn't necessarily. It's not necessarily a predictor a predictor of future performance, but he has been associated with some good things. Uh, and, yeah, you know, he is, he is a kind of... Can I, is this where I'm rude and childish and I tell you that he signed Dmitry Chigrinsky for $20 million back when that was a lot of money? We, none of us gets everything right. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, look, I, but, but, I mean, there are Big Eerie Stein figures, though, at, at, at other clubs. I mean, Chelsea have Michael Eminalo, who, who does that, and, and actually he and Marina have a lot more power uh, than... Uh, uh, than the Chelsea manager does. Sorry, do you said Mar- you said Marina as in Marina Granovsky, the, the yeah. chief exec- Okay, right, not Mourinho. Um, and uh, you know they have, they have a lot more power than the um, than the Chelsea manager does in terms of of, of, of identifying target and, and running transfers. Um, Arsenal have this guy named Dick Law who, who supposedly is a contract specialist, although obviously you know Wenger runs everything there. Um, Spurs until a couple of days ago. Uh, had a, a had a dedicated director of football in Franco Baldini. Uh, Liverpool have their transfer committee, which is more of a 
of a group exercise, but you know, ultimately there is one negotiator. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you know, the clubs are set up that way. The two exceptions being perhaps again Arsenal because Wenger is so all powerful and all pervasive, and uh, and United because I guess Woodward wants to do it himself. But you know, I think those figures are there. I, I just think that you know maybe they made some some poor choices. I mean, this this issue of sort of lack of expertise. I mean, it's not just a question of um, people making bad decisions about how to spend money. There's also, if you if you sort of step back and look in the longer term, there seems to be a real problem in English football with coming up with ideas. I mean, we've seen over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, I mean, all the ideas have, have come from Holland, Spain, more lately Germany. Um, you know, Italy has always had its own idea of how to play the game. And it seems as though English football is always trying to imitate one or the other, you know, whichever whichever of these kind of schools happens to be in fashion at the moment, without ever come up coming up with anything itself. Why why do you think it is that English football doesn't seem to originate anything? Well, it's funny because I would argue that on the commercial side, English football has originated a lot, which has been copied by others uh, from the commercialization of the game. Uh, to you know something stupid like putting uh, 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 sort of people's names on on shirts to, um, to to the way the Premier League contract is, is struggled. So even those then, are though, aren't they just copying? They aren't they just copying the Americans when they do that? Is it? Is it no, <laughs> I don't. I I I don't. I I don't think so. I mean, I think yeah. In some aspects, obviously, the Americans commercialized things first, but I think they tailored it to football in ways that other countries have it. Um, in the way that, for example, not every game is on television in this country, uh, which I don't like personally, but um, which has, has certainly been successful and, and so on. So in that sense, they've been very good. I think when it comes to football and tactical innovation, um, they've been very bad. And they've been very bad for a very, very long time. Um, well, there are and, no English managers. I mean, the, the, the guys at the very top clubs, they, the people who are strategizing, thinking about the game aren't English. So I suppose that could be an issue as well. So I'm not saying that, uh, I'm, not, I'm not going down the Sam Allardyce route here saying that the English people need the top jobs, but if you are talking about the countries who've uh, brought original ideas to it, you would see their top clubs generally populated by men from that country thinking about the game, I would have thought. I would completely agree with you, and I would also suggest, um, and at the risk, and I hope people don't, don't take this the wrong way, um, you know, there, there, there's reasons for that. I, I think... For a number of reasons, you know, and, and this has to do with the game's roots, um, football really hasn't been seen historically in England as, as an intellectual pursuit, right? It, it was just kind of like, you know, fodder for the masses, the same masses who went and died in the trenches and worked on the assembly line. They weren't necessarily encouraged to think, right? You don't want footballers who, who think too much because then, you know, you become suspicious of them. Um, to become a football manager, you didn't need badges until very recently. Um, and, you know, contrast that with the approach in Germany, for example, where so many of the managers have degrees in higher education. In Italy, where you have something like, like the Coverciano Academy, which is, you know, it's just a proper 18-month course to become, uh, to become a manager. Uh, in Spain and South America, where entirely different profiles of people you know, become managers. You don't have this situation where, you know, people hang up their boots and uh, and immediately go into management. You know, a, a guy like Manuel Pellegrini, for example, you know, the guy has a university degree. 
Um, and he was a top, and he was also, you know, a really, really top, top, uh, top notch footballer as well. Uh, it's, it's just a different profile of person and there's more dialogue. There's more, I think, encouragement to think differently, uh, more encouragement to be different. Um, I, and, you know, I, and I think something, and, and, and I think something was lost there. Uh, on top of that right now, of course, you have this other issue where, you know, there is a lot of, of four managers, and that's probably the result of market forces. And, and you know, maybe it would have been different if, if Brendan Rodgers and Davey, Davey Moyes had done really well at, at Liverpool and, uh, and at United, then, you know, maybe there would have been a knock-on effect where people would have then, you know, looked at the next, next tier down or, or whatever it is. But, you know, even now we have a situation where, you know, when you ask yourself, well, what makes Roy Hodgson good? And people trot out the fact Oh well, but you know he did so well in Scandinavia and in Switzerland and in Italy. You know he, he's an English manager, but he's not—he's not considered to be sort of of English football, right? I, you know, those are all things that that need to change, and and maybe they will. The other question, I suppose, is—is is, uh, I mean, everyone was kind of looking at how, how wealthy the Premier League clubs are. You know, everyone's looking at the Deloitte Money League and expecting to see the English clubs dominating uh, in European competition. Um, Maybe we just need to wait a couple of years for that to happen. I mean, the last time English football had quite a dominant period, I mean, with teams appearing in the final of the Champions League every year, you, you know, tracked um, big uh, bubbles bursting in Spanish, German and Italian football in the previous years. Um, so it could be that this sort of uh, cash advantage is something which just takes a, a little while to come into play. I mean, I, I can remember the days when, um, you know, the best footballers in the world would go to... Uh, Milan and, and uh, Inter, uh, you know, even in some cases Roma or Fiorentina. And it wasn't necessarily because Italian football was smarter. It was because Italian football was paying the highest wages. Uh, currently, that's Real Madrid and Barcelona. Um, but if English clubs start going there, then they, they, they will kind of uh, inevitably inherit that sort of dominant uh, status. It was also Udinese. That's where, that's where Zico went, by the way. Um, Verona. I, I mean, it was LKR Verona. It was insane what was going on there for a while, but it was because yeah. it was driven by wages. Well, yeah, it was different, driven by wages, driven by the fact that, um, you know, there were limits on foreigners. So it was a mark of pride because you were among the elite if you were, if you were there. Um, and I think also people just wanted to play at the very highest level. Um, and that happens all the time. And with the Champions League not being so dominant, you know, now I can, you know, I can play in France. And if I play in the Champions League, I can say I'm playing at the highest level. You know, back then that wasn't the case. Um, but I, I think, though, the, the, the difference between then and today is the dominance, the, the financial dominance of the Italian clubs back then was so exponentially bigger than, than, than the dominance of the, of the Premier League today. I mean, the Premier League today, it, it's just no comparison. I mean, in Italy, you know, you had, you know, the, the, the you had sort of the the number ten club, say in Serie A, um, was basically the number twelve club in the world in terms of wage bill back then. Um, now it's not the case because now you have super clubs uh, like Barcelona and Paris Saint Germain and Bayern and Real Madrid and whatnot, who are always going to be compete and and all going to be able to compete economically with the with the Premier League, and also with the um, and, and and often outperform them. Um, financially, so I don't think it's ever going to get to that. Uh, it's ever going to get to that point. I, I think a bigger concern for the Premier League is, is maybe then the question they ought to be asking themselves when they do spend the money on players is, 
am I getting maximum bang for buck or am I going to be taken for a ride here? You know, it's a little bit, if kind of, if you walk onto a used car lot and you're dressed in an Armani suit and you're sporting the big cheesy Hublot watch that Mourinho wears and, and you've got, you know, you're and, and, and you rocked up in a Rolls Royce. My guess is you'll be charged more for your uh, for the used car that you're trying to buy uh, than the guy who uh, you know who shows up with ripped jeans and, and a dirty oil stained T-shirt. Um, and I think that's that's the, the the reality. It's it's commonplace. You know, players charge two different prices, uh, or sorry, clubs charge two different prices. One for Premier League clubs based on the type of Premier League club it is, and and one for for other clubs because they know that you know clubs fall in love with certain types of players and and they'll go and and, and they'll pay the money for them. Cabrera, brilliant stuff as always. Thanks a million. My pleasure. Do you agree with that kind of bit, um, Serie A in the nineteen eighties being actually not quite the same as pre- we talk about the Premier League being the dominant league in terms of the money and the great players and all the rest of it that it attracts over, but actually, as we were saying in Serie A in the nineteen eighties and even into the nineteen nineties even the weak teams are attracting some of the biggest names in world football. Mm. So it's not quite no, that distinct. It isn't quite the same. I mean, the the point about the foreigners real is a, is a good point. I think Jonathan Wilson made that point when we talked to him about this before as well, that um, that all the money that was sloshing around in Italian football was, was narrowly focused on the very best mm. foreign players. Whereas now uh, with the Premier League, it's kind of, it's wh- whoever you can get. Um, it's so you've got a situation where the very best players are literally all playing for Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, and Barcelona. It's amazing what's what's happened here, and everybody who's just below that level is in the Premier League. You know what I mean? Mesut Ozil or Alexis Sanchez or these guys who aren't quite at the level of uh, Schweinsteiger. Yeah, you know they're they're all uh, they're all in the Premier League, and so you get. But at the very top level of of European competition, having the best players makes a difference. That said, it's not as though the group stage of the Champions League is the very top level. You know what I mean? So their their performance has been poor. I'm inclined to think it will improve. It's funny. You remember the Milan players in particular, uh, the brilliant Dutch players they had. Juventus obviously bringing in Platini and Liam Brady and these kind of guys. Uh, Inter, Inter Milan, I remember reading a piece not that long ago about their experiment with the German. Wasn't it uh, Matthias and Bremen? Was there somebody else? Um, they kind of went German. Been. They kind of went German a little bit around the time that um, the Ace Man were going Dutch and it didn't quite work out as well for them. Oh, it did. I mean, they won the league. Well, yeah. They won the league with with, uh, Trapattoni um, as the manager. Probably never became the dominant force in European football that uh, AC Milan did. No, they didn't. I mean, Milan had had better luck. I'm trying to think what happened to Inter in in Europe. Uh, But they did at least win win the league. And the league was what everybody in Italy at the time regarded as the big prize. That was was the one you really wanted to win. John Bruin was at the Emirates on Tuesday night to see Arsenal's humiliation. John, is humiliation going too far? Yeah, I'd call it a humiliation. It's definitely a a huge embarrassment to Arsenal. Um, The last Champions League game I attended at uh, the Emirates was their loss to Monaco back in February. which is regarded as uh, you know last season's I suppose low point, and I'd say this is even more embarrassing because Olympiacos were not of the standard of Monaco, um, uh, a group of it has to be said um, rather journeyman players. I mean Brown Idai uh, on loan from West Brom, uh, among others. Though I have to say um, Esteban Cambiasso, uh, formerly of Leicester, was absolutely magnificent. But um, yeah, Olympiacos were. Uh, not a great team, but 
Uh, they, like many other teams in the Champions League over the years, I think it's six home defeats in 12 at the Emirates, found the key to taking apart Arsenal. Um, they were ready for Arsenal. If you actually look at the goals, aside from Osbina's mistake, which I'm sure we'll discuss, um, that those were goals that uh, picked at the weak, weak points at Arsenal because everyone knows what the weak points of Arsenal are. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned Ospina's goal. I, I, well, I mean, it is Ospina's goal. Ospina threw the ball into his own net, effectively. But I actually thought the third goal that Arsenal conceded was even worse. Um, I thought, I mean, I, I've seen goalkeepers make mistakes like that before, and it's kind of like something that happens every so often. And you can, you know, there's a question over whether Ospina should have been on the field, um, which Arsene Wenger was asked afterwards. But the, but the third goal, they've just equalised. I mean, it took them, you know, they've been, it's wave after wave of attack. Arsenal equalise, and then by the time they've actually finished showing Arsene Wenger's celebration uh, on TV and switch back to the game, Olympiacos are attacking and, and immediately score. I mean, when the ball was passed back across the front of Arsenal's box, there was absolutely nobody there. Where was everybody in Arsenal's team? I mean, it was a, it was a goal that shamed not just one player, but the entire team and arguably the entire managerial ethos of Arsene Wenger. Yeah, <laughs> that's strong, but uh, but actually, it's very true. It's absolutely true. I mean, how can you I, do I, that I, I do in a circumstance like that? You know, you've, this is a massive game. You've just got back into it. Everyone's going, okay, you know, let's go on and win this now, and. Uh, and then this is what happens in the next second. It was ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I have to mention Cambiasso again, because if you remember, there was a Olympiacos mounted an instant attack and the ball was actually cleared. But if you, if you look at it, the ball that he plays out to the right-hand side um, just foxed Arsenal completely. Now there is a that there was an offside shout and all that, but really, morally... Uh, Arsenal fell apart at that moment. Um, they have a big problem at the heart of the team. Um, and I think Francis Coquelin is a good player. Um, but I do believe, actually, that he'd been taken off at this point. When uh, when Wenger is uh, chasing down a game, he often takes him off and then leaves the team open. Um, and they just Wenger... Something about them in Europe, it was very similar again to that goal against Monaco last season, the very final goal that they scored in that 3-1 win, which pretty much took the tie away from him. They go to sleep in, in Europe. Um, teams that are able to attack at counter-attacking pace pull them apart. Teams that switch the ball to where Arsenal's sleeping defence can't find them pull them apart. Um, it was a desperately poor evening for Arsenal. And I do agree, um, the, the thing that you said at the end of your... Uh, well, let's call it a rant, Ken. Uh, it, 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 yeah, it, it reflects very badly on the manager because the manager is the guy who still takes all the training, who arranges all the drills, and yet they defend like that in Europe when he's had 15 years of them defending like that in Europe. Yeah, yeah. and also with, with um, you know, not very good goalkeepers, except the difference now is that they actually do have a good goalkeeper and he's sitting there watching this game happen. So I know Arsene Wenger didn't really want to talk about it afterwards, uh, and he got into one of his snippy moods and sort of, I don't have to justify everything to you. Um, I'm sure people were talking about it afterwards. Did anyone come up with any convincing theories as to, uh, to explain this insane selection decision, Marcel Wenger? Well, yes, yes. Uh, the, the, the theory is that um, uh, when Czech was bought, uh, obviously Arsenal had two goalkeepers who had considered themselves first choice at a certain point, Wojciech Chesney and David Ospina, and both of them wanted to leave the club. And he had to convince one of them to stay 
so that the theory goes that he told Ospina that he would play in cup games and maybe in the Champions League. I mean, similar arrangement, of course, to the one that Real Madrid had uh, with uh, Ike Casillas and uh, Diego Lopez and similar one Barcelona had. Uh, the, the difference there, I suppose, is that there is perhaps wasn't that much between the two goalkeepers that Real Madrid and Barcelona had. Um, at Arsenal, you've got to say Petr Cech is one of the top five keepers in the Premier League. Ospina last season... OK, he kept quite a few clean sheets, which Arsene Wenger was happy to point out during his uh, rather angry post-match press conference. But he's not a goalkeeper of anywhere near Champions League class. And you have to say that, well, no, almost no goalkeeper would have made that mistake in the uh, for the goal. It's one of those things that happens, but you'd have to back-check to produce a better yeah, performance. And it wasn't even just one mistake. His, it was, his initial positioning was awful. He's standing, yeah. out, standing somewhere out by the six yard, almost daring somebody to try and chip it over him. Then he runs back and fails to handle it, fails to just tip it over the bar as he's running back. But the, what you said there about this arrangement, this sort of loose arrangement to give him cup games and Champions League games. I can't believe Champions League matches get lumped in with, say, League Cup, League cup or even FA Cup games. And the Champions League is a competition that Arsenal could conceivably win and the club have never won it in their history. It seems bizarre that it's seen as sort of a sop to a goalkeeper just to keep him reasonably happy. Who cares if he's happy anyway, John? Why, how does he get to decide? How does he get to dictate to Arsene Wenger who plays in Champions League games? Why doesn't every substitute player at the club have a, have a deal where they get to play in the Champions League? Well, yeah, I mean, there's two things at hand there. Perhaps Arsene Wenger is getting a little complacent about qualifying from the Champions League group and thought, well, well we've got this group, it looks quite easy. Olympiakos, you know, this is an easy opponent. The other thing is Arsene Wenger's relationship with players is very strong. Uh, he backs his players. Um, he always looks so upset for players to leave. There are very few players leave the club, um, pr probably with, with a bad view of Wenger, really. I mean, maybe a couple of them, Fabregas and Van Persie, but that's for the reason that they went to play for clubs that, where they could win more trophies. But he backs his players. He will always make promises to them. And in that sense, you know, you do sense a little, little bit of weakness there. That he's not as pragmatic as other managers. He's not a Jose Mourinho. He's not an Alex Ferguson. He's not even making the type of decision that Brendan Rodgers was making in cutting Steven Gerrard last season. Um, it's one that's backfired very badly on him. Um, but you would say that his stubbornness <laughs> may result in Ospina playing the next game. And actually, if you recall, he played in the Dinamo Zagreb game and didn't play well in that either. So that still that didn't change his mind there. John, I just wanted to ask you briefly about a, a different code, a different shaped ball, because I've seen you tweeting about the Rugby World Cup. You're disgusted by the media treatment of slamming Sam Burgess. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know much about rugby union. I mean, if I follow it, I mean, we played it at school and all that. I'm actually from rugby union country, Cheshire. Right, right. And, uh, but being from the north, league is more the, the deal there. Um but yeah, I mean, as far as I can see, uh, Sam Burgess was taken off and England started losing after that. Now, you know, that, that was fairly simple theory uh, and I've read Gordon Darcy's excellent article, but I don't really uh, see that it should be lumped on to Burgess. And it, it, that's an article that's made headlines over here, actually, flicking through the papers. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. Maybe I was just backing my fellow Northern or something like that, but... Um, and I, I could never pretend to know the intricacies of playing 12 or 13 centre international rugby. But I thought it was a bit unfair on Sam. Um, 
I'm sticking with the no. All right, John. John Bruin slams Gordon Darcy here. We might have to uh, might have to get Darcy on for his his right of reply here. Listen, John, that's absolutely brilliant. No Thanks for much. So bring it on. John Bruins and Sendry remarks there on slamming Sam Burgess. The king in the north, John <laughs> Bruin. <laughs> you know nothing, John Snow. <laughs> John Bruin. You know nothing, John Bruin. I, I, yeah, I, I agree with... I agree with John that maybe Burgess has been a touch harshly scapegoated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also that Arsenal are really, were really embarrassing and humiliated the other night. Well, Sam Burgess is now out of the England team, by the way, just uh, to add on to that. He's been dropped. Well, he was always, they, they would have played Jonathan Joseph in the first place in the first game, if not for his injuries. So Jonathan Joseph is back. Slamming Sam Burgess is out. There's got to be, there's got to be red meat. But, you know, just on Arsenal, there's this amazing quote from Finn Bogerson. Finn Bogerson, the Icelandic mm-hmm. A player who scored the third, the winning goal for Olympiacos. Um, he says, uh, when you play against a team, you know they're going to have a lot of the ball. You have to defend well, have to line sight, use your time when you have spaces. And you know you're going to have spaces because they don't want to defend. So our plan worked. I mean, that's just amazing, you know? That's so embarrassing. What must the old Arsenal, any Arsenal supporter <laughs> yeah. over the age of 35 or so think when they, when they hear that? That is not... Arsenal need to rediscover some... They need to go back to basics, though. Are they going to rediscover the their back-to-basics attitude at Old Trafford on Sunday? No, just take it's, it's, beating? it's Emirates, I think. Oh, I think, excuse me, sorry. I think, think the game's at the Emirates, and I... Well, just because they're at the Emirates, you, you have to give them a chance. It's not as though Manchester United looked amazing against Wolfsburg. They gave away plenty of chances. Um, but they're definitely the team in better form at the moment. So, and Arsenal's record against them is not good. So... I'm going to actually go for Man United to win that. All right. 
That's it for this show. Just to let you know that if you are listening from London or anywhere around London, or if you're heading over there for the Ireland Italy game, the World Cup this weekend, there's a big event on the day before that. So this is Saturday that you might be interested in. It's a rugby rock fusion featuring a Q&A with uh, loads of huge Irish rugby names. And the rock is being provided by second captain's favourite band. Hermitage Green are playing this one. So you don't want to miss them. The guys are absolutely brilliant live. It's on the brewery in the city centre in London. The doors are at 4.30. You can get tickets at the door or check out facebook.com forward slash Hermitage Green forward slash events. So facebook.com forward slash Hermitage Green. If you're in London, sounds like good crack the day before the game. Uh, the game itself is on Sunday. This event is on Saturday, 4.30pm. Enjoy that if you're going. Uh, the other show we put out today features, sticking to the rugby team, Stephen Ferris was in great form. He was in talking about his autobiography and about the current World Cup and a little bit about Matt Williams' criticisms of Jared Payne, which was an interesting about 90 seconds, two minutes of the long chat that we had there. And we also talked about the Mayo football team and their heave against management. That's it from us. Thanks again. Thank you. All. Thanks for listening. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home.